All right. Well, good morning, friends. Good to be together again uh, as we gather. I know we're, we're scattered all over Mercer and Bucks and wherever it is that we're gathering and watching this from, but it is good to get together as, as certainly with a unity of purpose uh, to consider what the Lord has for us. And today we're going to keep making our way through the book of Mark. And so you can uh, find your Bible, begin turning to Mark chapter 14. As we've uh, pointed out last week, the longest chapter in the book will probably be here in this chapter three weeks or so, maybe more um, than that. And also today we're going to be celebrating communion. So if, uh, if you haven't yet gotten your communion elements, you know, some bread, uh, some juice, um, you may want to send somebody from your party there to go and get that and, and have that ready because we're going to go right into communion um, during, at the conclusion of our time together this morning. As I said, we are in Mark chapter 14, and as you recall, Mark chapter 14 is, it begins uh, with this beautiful act of devotion on the part of one of Jesus' disciples, a woman by the name of Mary, a woman we have seen a number of different times in the Gospels, um, each time interestingly in proximity to the Lord, sitting at his feet, learning from him, sitting at his feet, or falling at his feet crying out to him when her brother died. And, and here in this instance uh, that we looked at last week, falling at his feet and anointing his feet and his head uh, with this precious ointment here. Uh, this woman, wonderful woman, this act of devotion. Um, now Mark, as I pointed out, what he will do is he'll take stories and on purpose he'll put them at, out of order uh, chronologically, but he'll put them right next to one another, so almost so that it appears it was one right after the other. And he does that because Mark, throughout his gospel, is utilizing the technique of comparing people or things. And so here he's comparing, he's actually contrasting this the devotion of this woman Mary with this act of betrayal by another of Jesus's quote-unquote quote followers. Of Mary, he, he essentially said to her, that is the sweetest thing that someone has ever done for me. Of Judas, Jesus could say of her, that was the greatest act of betrayal that someone has ever done for me. And so today we're going to be looking at that. And if you are there yet in Mark 14, you can look at verse 10. And in verse 10, it says this, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them, him being Jesus. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we took notice that the, uh, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders, all of those folks that made up the Sanhedrin, that they had decided that they were going to put off their plans to uh, execute Jesus, to kill, to destroy Jesus, because they saw the way that the, the population and the crowds were responding to the Lord. They determined it was in their best interest not to, to raise the issue with the Lord at that time, lest the crowds swell uh, and overwhelm them. And so their plan was, we're going to put it off. But divine providence overruled their human scheming. And thus, here now are these disciples, or excuse me, these uh, religious leaders, and they're presented with a golden opportunity uh, to, to take the Lord, one of his own disciples willing to betray him. And in that, they end up fulfilling the scriptures by putting to death the one John the Baptist would in another place call the Lamb of God, to putting him to death on the very day of the Passover. 
And so once again, we see the way in which the Lord is in complete and sovereign control of all of these circumstances. I'm reminded again of that scripture verse that Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down sovereignly in control, that he would even be crucified by those that denied that he was the Messiah on the very day of Passover, when God's Passover lamb would be sacrificed. Now, if you're not familiar, let me just remind you of a couple things about the Jewish Passover. That's what, again, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, those two feasts put side by side, form sort of like this eight-day, one-day, one feast over a period of about eight days. It's the Passover that is drawing all of these pilgrims uh, to Jerusalem. Again, it could be as many as three million people that come to Jerusalem in a town that normally held about 50,000 people. And they're coming there, they're coming to celebrate the Passover. Passover we learn about in the book of Exodus. The Passover, uh, that final uh a part of that final plague in which God miraculously preserved and protected the Jewish people. I'll remind you, there was a series of plagues, 10 of them actually, and those plagues devastated the empire of Egypt. And in each of those plagues, God pronounced that he was going to make a distinction between the Jewish people and the Egyptians, that the Egyptians would be impacted by these plagues, but the Jews would be protected from these particular plagues. And that was never more clearly seen than in the 10th and final plague. We read about it in Exodus chapter 11. I'll read it to you. I know you you don't have time to turn there. Exodus 11, it says, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be. And as uh, Exodus 11 says, the Lord was going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And he was ultimately going to force the hand of the Egyptians to not only free the children of Israel, but in a sense to drive out the children of Israel. Because that night, the scripture says the Lord was going to pass through the land, and it says there in verse 13 of that chapter, he would pass over any home upon which the blood of the lamb had been applied. But on those homes on which the blood had not been applied, then judgment and ultimately death would come. That night at midnight, judgment would come upon the land, and those that applied the blood of the sacrifice would be saved, while those that did not would experience judgment. Now, the text doesn't say this, but it's quite possible, if not likely, that there were some Jews that thought, I'm not going to put that messy blood on the side of my house. What are you talking about? That's disgusting. And there may have even been some Egyptians that had seen all the other plagues Uh, hit their land and say, hey, look, give me some of that blood. I'm going to apply it to my door. So God's not looking uh, for Jewish homes and Egyptian homes. What he's looking for is the blood of the lamb. And it says where he found the blood of the lamb applied to the home, all that were in that home were saved from judgment. You recall when John the Baptist first took notice of the Lord, at the start of the Lord's public ministry, that John declared this. It's in John chapter 129. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It is no accident that Jesus was betrayed and then offered up on the day of the Jewish Passover. Because in the exact same way that the Lord passed over those homes upon which the blood had been applied, even so does he now pass over those lives upon whom the blood of his son has been applied. A Jewish father in that day, in faith, would have taken some of the blood of his, Passover, of the, his family's Passover lamb, and they would have applied that blood across the doorpost, down the two doorposts, and across the lentil of that particular home. Because God said, this is the means whereby you can be saved. And those that trusted that and did that were saved. Those that did not trust God's word and did not do that were not saved. If a family trusted God in his word and obeyed his command, that family was protected from the wrath of God. And again, if they ignored his instructions and took their chances, well, then they experienced that home. The whole home experienced judgment. In the New Testament, we read this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is the means by which God has determined that man's problem of sin can be dealt with is his son, Jesus Christ. And thus, those who have appropriated the work of, of Christ, that is his work on the cross, they will be saved. While those that have decided to say, you know what, I'll take my chances without trusting in Christ, the Bible makes it very clear they will experience judgment. Remember, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world. The Bible is very, very clear about that. God sent his son not into the world to condemn the world because it says the world was condemned already. But rather, he sent his son into the world that the world might be saved through him. John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And so here it was the intention of the religious leaders to delay the arrest and the execution of Jesus until after the Passover. And yet, through God's sovereign guiding hand, these religious leaders actually end up being right at the forefront of fulfilling the typology of God's Passover lamp. <clears throat> these religious leaders thought they were in control. They thought they were calling all the shots, but what we see is that Jesus is sovereignly in control. Again, a reminder of John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I freely lay it down. And so we read verse 10 of Mark 14, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. It seems as if Mary's act of devotion... Jesus' response to that act of devotion, you may, may recall, they all started criticizing Mary, and, and Jesus says, everybody stop. Leave her alone. What she has done is beautiful. All right? And it seems that Mary's act of devotion, all that wasted money, according to Judas, Jesus' rebuke of Judas and the other disciples, it seems something about that is the straw that broke the camel's back for, G for Judas. That Judas now has determined, you know what, I'm going to betray the Lord. It's a, it's a crazy enigma, really. How, how can it be? How can a person that has been this close to the Lord end up betraying him? How can it be that this person who for the last three years sat and listened to the Lord teach all these things, watched the things that he'd done, he had done, how can he now go on to betray him? How could it be that Judas, who was one of the 12 that was sent out, 
and empowered to not only preach the word, but to perform miracles, how can it be now that this man now will go on to betray the Lord? Well, it becomes evident that Judas never actually knew the Lord. He was around all the other Christians. He was around all the other disciples. And he even looked and appeared to be a disciple. But the reality is he never actually knew the Lord for himself. There's a whole lot of people that speculate as to Judas's motivation. Some have suggested that Judas didn't like the direction that Jesus's ministry was going, that three years earlier or whatever the number was when Judas sort of jumped on board, it clearly appeared that Jesus was ready to take over the world. Now all of a sudden Jesus is talking more and more uh, about being a servant and giving his life and they're going to betray the Son of Man and, and that Judas didn't like the direction that things were going. And some have even suggested that Judas sort of had this plan, he would betray the Lord and force the Lord's hand so that the Lord would have to stand up to the Romans and thus take over and set up his throne. And so some have suggested that Judas was actually trying to help Jesus be all that he was meant to be. Maybe. Others have suggested that Judas was just simply offended by the way in which the Lord had just rebuked him uh, publicly. And so that motivated him. Here, we don't know the answer to those things. I don't really buy into either of those, honestly. And we can't say for certain one way or the other. What we can fa say for certain is it says that Judas was a thief. We read that, we read that in John chapter 12, verse 6. John is uh, the gospel writer there that says he didn't care about the poor when he told them not to make this, Mary not to make this kind of a wasteful offering. But he said this because he was a thief and he liked to dip his hand into the treasury bag. Also, we see here uh, in the account we're looking at that when Judas went to the religious priest, he begins to negotiate with them. How much will you give me if I have him turned over to you? Well, we'll give you five bucks. Not enough. You got to up the ante. And he negotiates with them. He bargains with them. He says, Matthew 26, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And so while it's possible that some of those other motivating factors were involved in uh, motivating him to do what he did, what we can say for, sure, for certain is that Judas's covetousness ultimately drove him. Judas's greed is what drove him. That we know definitely motivated him. Now, I think when we think of covetousness, we think of greed. I imagine that there are plenty of other sins that we might list as more serious than the sins of covetousness or greed. And so we think of things like murder. We think of things like robbery. We think of the abuse of children or something like rape. And we, we see those sins. We see those crimes. And I'm certain every one of us here thinks of them as more serious than covetousness and greed. But I'll remind you that the Bible makes clear. It says this, 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, for the love of money. Now, that's what covetousness is. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so that quickly elevates covetousness and greed as a very, very serious sin. G. Campbell Morgan, who is one of the best, he said this. He said, the word covetousness does not startle the human heart. At its mention, none blushes or blanches, yet it is the deadliest of all deadly sins. Covetousness is the subtlest sin of all. Again, according to Paul's words to Timothy, covetousness, also known as the love of money, 
is a root from which every form of evil may spring. We think it's not such a serious sin. We think it's not something like murder or something like that, some of the other big sins. But the reality is the Bible makes it clear that covetousness is the basis upon which every other sin stands, and thus it must be guarded against in our lives. It was Judas's greed that led him to betray the Lord for the very best price that he could get. And it causes men and women to betray the Lord for much less every other day of the, of the year and, and of history. For money, Judas was willing to betray the Lord. And the chief priests and the religious leaders, they were glad to hear that he was willing to do so. And all they had to do was hammer out the details and look for the right opportune moment. And that opportunity would come a little bit later uh, in that week, um, which we're going to get to as we, we progress into some of our future studies. But let's pick up now in verse 12 as sort of the Mark's uh, gospel sort of transitions and it transitions to the first day of unleavened bread. This would be Thursday of the week. It says this, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. Verse 16, and the disciples set out and they went into the city and they found it just as he had told them. And so there they prepared the Passover. Now, I mentioned it last week, I briefly mentioned it this week, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're actually two separate feasts. They come one right after the other, Passover, a one-day feast, the Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast. And so, in a sense, this becomes an eight-day festival for the Jewish people. Here now, on the Thursday of Pass, uh, what we call Passion Week, Passover Week, we read that Jesus... And his disciples, they begin to make preparation for the meal. Where, where are we going to celebrate this meal? And I, I told you, this is a big deal to the Jewish people. It was sort of this lifelong dream of all distant Jews, those that didn't live in and around Jerusalem, that one day they might get to Jerusalem to be able to celebrate the Passover, be there right in town to celebrate the Passover. And so they are now making those preparations. They're not from Jerusalem. Uh, and so, you know, they can't go to one of their dining rooms. And there's at least 13 of them that are going to be at this meal, the 12 apostles and Jesus and perhaps some of the other disciples uh, that were followers of the Lord. And so they need to find a large enough space that could house all of them. And, and so they are put to the task. Mark tells us a couple of disciples approach the Lord. We read in Luke's gospel specifically who those two disciples are. It's Peter and John. And so Peter and John, Jesus sends them, and he says, go and make preparations for the Passover. They're told to go into the city. Now, of course, that's Jerusalem, and they'd be outside of the city. They'd spend most of their evenings at Bethany or Bethpage or even on the Mount of Olives. All of those are outside of Jerusalem. He says, go into the city. And he says, and there, when you get there, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. And when you see that guy, begin to follow him. Now, that seems a little, like an odd sign. Um, what if there were two different men carrying a jar of water? How do you know which one to follow? Uh, and so on. 
it was actually a pretty definitive way of finding this person that they were looking for because a man almost never carried uh, a vessel or a jar of water. That was work that was typically reserved to the women of that particular day. And it was the women who ordinarily, ordinarily carried these larger pots of water that they would bring to their homes to what, do whatever it is they had to do with those particular things. And so to come into the city and to see a man carrying a jar of water, it would have been an instant tell for them, that's the guy that Jesus told us to look for. It was very distinctive. And so they are going to do that. Peter and John are going to go into the city. They're going to see this man. Then it goes on in verse 14. It says, follow that man. And whatever house he enters into, that's the house. Go into that house, find the master of the home, uh, and say, where is the guest room the teacher, that the teacher may eat the Passover with his disciples? Uh, the room that he showed them would be the room they would host this Passover meal. Now, it's almost certain. Uh, this kind of, it's like, oh, it's so spooky or something like that. It's almost certain that the Lord had prepared sort of this beforehand. He had talked to this guy here, and the guy said, you can have Passover at my place, uh, and so on. Much like when Jesus, it seems, set up the riding in on the donkey, and they had to go and take a donkey, and someone says, why are you taking my donkey? And he says, the Lord has need of him, and oh, okay. It, it seems as if it was already worked out. It also seems that there's a bit of kind of a, a cloak and dagger uh, that is going on here, uh, which may be ascribed to the fact that the Lord was fully aware that Judas was looking for an opportunity to hand the Lord over uh, to the religious authorities. And so since the Lord eagerly wanted to eat this meal, we learned that in Luke chapter 22, at the meal, Jesus would say to his disciples how he eagerly, he lustfully is the word, desired to eat this meal with them. Since the Lord was so hungry to have this opportunity to gather with his disciples in this particular way, it, it seems as if, perhaps, that he's trying to keep the location of the place secret um, from the rest of the disciples, even initially from Peter and uh, John here. Because if Judas knew exactly where they were going to go, if Jesus would have answered Peter and John and said, well, we're going to go to so-and-so's house and tell them we'll be there at six, well, then Judas would have known exactly where they would have been and the whole thing could have been interrupted. But instead, they keep it a secret. Verse 16 goes on, and so the disciples set out, they went to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and there they prepared the Passover. Continuing on, 17 says, now when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after the other, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, the Passover day actually began at 6 p.m. of the previous day. And so if you, if you want to put it in our terms, Friday the 14th would actually begin at 6 p.m. on Thursday the 13th. And so their day began at sundown of the day prior. And so sometime around 6 p.m., some right around there, 
On the Thursday of the Passion Week, Jesus and his disciples, they gather at this prearranged spot and they're going to celebrate the Passover. And Mark continues and he says, during that meal, as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus kind of interrupts things and he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, if I haven't said this yet, this particular Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, this is going to go on to become what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. And you no doubt have in your mind da Vinci's famous painting of that event in which Jesus and the Twelve, they're all seated side by side on one side of the table. It's at a raised table. They're sitting on their chairs much like we would be. Uh, da Vinci depicted it in that way. The reality is the disciples wouldn't have been in chairs at all. And they wouldn't have been around a raised table or on one side of a raised table, but instead they would have essentially been reclining at table, laying down at table. They would be leaning in to, into the, sort of this circle. The table was probably more like a mat of some sort. They'd be leaning in on one arm, and with the other arm they would reach and they would feed themselves with their feet um, heading out in the other direction. So we often think of da, Vin da Vinci's depiction of it, we have another, it's sort of a drawing here. No one took a camera that day. It's a drawing of it, but it kind of gives you that, that more likely impression of what was going on there. And so as they're dining there, as they're around this little mat, this table of sorts, and as they dine, sometime during that meal, Jesus sort of, you know, he pierces through everything and he makes this statement, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me even one that is eating with me. Now, that's not the only thing that Jesus shared at the meal. This was a Passover meal that probably followed all of the normal Passover procedures that some of you uh, have probably participated in. We also learn from John's gospel. John's gospel is the most descriptive of this event, whereas uh, Mark, for instance, it's 10 or 12 verses, and similarly in Matthew and in Luke, John has five chapters devoted to this Last Supper. And so picking up around John chapter 13 or so, John chapter 14, and going all the way to about John chapter 17. Five chapters. John wrote 21 chapters. And so you do the math real quick, and that's, that's like 25%, somebody help me, uh, or so 20, 25% of the book is devoted to this Last Supper. Uh, almost half of John's book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And so if you really want to dig into all that went on at the Last Supper, I'd, I'd advise you to read John's gospel here on the Last Supper. John is the one who tells us that Jesus washes the, the feet of the disciples. John is the one that tells us that in a conversation with his disciples, uh, he says, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. And the disciples said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father unless he goes through me. John chapter 15 is where Jesus talks about this idea of abide in Christ. Abide in me and I in him and all of us together. Uh, he, he speaks there. John chapter 17 is that high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples um, there. And so uh, glorious, beautiful work there. But all these other things are going on, but at some point, it's Matthew, it's Mark, it's Luke, John even does it as well, they all take notice of the fact that Jesus makes the statement, one of you this night will betray me. 
Mark 14, verse 18. And he says it in such a way that it, it hearkens us back, and probably as listeners as well, back to a, a prophecy that is in the Psalms, the Old Testament Psalm 41, which says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. It's one thing to be betrayed by an enemy. I'm not even sure an enemy can betray you. Um, they're out to get you nonetheless. But it's one thing to sort of be turned over by an enemy. It's a, on a whole other level of betrayal when it is one's own friend. And Jesus draws attention to that. The psalmist drew attention to that. Now, you'll notice the response of the disciples. Starting in verse 19, they say, they, it says, They began to be sorrowful and to say one after the other, Is it I? What you'll notice is none of them seems to have suspected Judas. Verse 19, it, just, it says, rather than saying, is it him, Lord? I had a feeling it was this guy. Rather than that, they instead begin to suspect themselves. And again, had they suspected Judas, they would have no doubt taken steps to stop Judas. You recall that Peter himself raises a sword against the soldiers that were coming against the Lord. And no doubt, surely, the 11 disciples, had they suspected Judas, they could have stopped Judas if they wanted to. And so what that tells us is that Judas was successfully able to hide both the attitude of his heart, which was not true, and the things that he had been doing, that is, plotting with the various officials to betray the Lord. It tells us here that they didn't suspect him that Judas was successfully able to hide those things. But this passage also tells us the person that he could not hide these things from was from the Lord, because the Lord says, one of you will betray me. In the book of Numbers, chapter 32, we read these valuable words. It says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. And whereas we may think and we may even successfully be able to for a bit of time, but we may think we can hide our sin from others, we can never hide our sin from the Lord. And there are no doubt things that we succeed in hiding from our fellow man, but we cannot hide those things from the Lord. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out. None of the disciples suspected Judas, but in a very healthy way, we take notice that the ones that they do suspect are themselves. And so, with the exception of Peter, none of them say, is it Peter? Or with the exception of James, none of them say, is it James? Instead, what each one of them says is, is it I? Each one of them recognize the evil propensity of their own hearts, and thus, with a very healthy distrust of themselves, began to ask if indeed were they the one that would betray him. Each one of the disciples, they had, if you will, this moment of clarity in which each one of them realized that somewhere deep down within them was the capacity for betrayal. They had, if you will, they have come to understand the same thing the Apostle Paul discovered about himself. And he wrote about it in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, when Paul said, look, I do not even understand my own actions. He says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul realized there was this propensity within him to do the exact opposite of what he wanted to do. And these disciples here, in this moment of clarity, they express sort of this healthy distrust 
of themselves. Let me ask you, do you have a healthy distrust of your own self? <clears throat> because if you're wise, you will. It's the person that does not. It's the person that plays around with sin, thinking they'll be okay, that is ultimately tripped up by that sin. It's the person I think others may fall, others may give in to this temptation, but I won't, or others might be tripped up by this sort of thing, but I would never be. That's the person that is tripped up by those things. The Bible, and no doubt each one of our experiences, provides us with plenty of examples of those that, saw, that thought the exact same thing about themselves, that this sin would never be able to master them, when in reality that's the exact thing that had occurred. And so we would be wise to receive the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in another place, where he said this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. These disciples, they had a healthy distrust of themselves, and so they begin to honestly ask the Lord, is it I? One after the other, they begin to inquire, Lord, am I the one that you are speaking of? Matthew points out that even Judas hypocritically asked the question. He, now you'll notice he says, Matthew 26, Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus responds to all of their inquiries by saying, it is the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, when you read that, you think, well, then that should be a dead giveaway. You would think that each of them would put their bread down, sort of back away, and just watch to see the one that would dip the bread in there and share it with the Lord uh, and so on. Um, the reality is the meaning of Jesus's phrase, it goes beyond this idea of uh, literally one person now taking this next piece of bread and dipping it, and that's the one. It goes beyond that. The, the idea here of dipping bread into the dish, every one of them had been dipping bread into the dish throughout this meal with the Lord and with the others. And so this was less of a statement about looking for that sign as it was about what it means to dip bread into a dish with another. Because to do that is a statement of friendship, and it's a statement of love. And so Jesus is saying less about watching for that sign as he is as saying, it's one of my very dear friends. It's one of you in this room here with me. Because again, all the disciples, they dipped with him. So this phrase then is a phrase meant to identify the betrayer as a friend. Mark doesn't mention anything about Judas in his account. And again, it, you know, in regard to what Judas said in that instance here, again, it's Matthew that tells us that along with the others, Judas, he poses the question. But you notice how he poses the question. It's different from the way they're talking. He says, surely you don't mean me. There's almost this aspect of sort of protesting his own innocence, when in reality, he has already taken steps to betray the Lord. Uh, and receiving money, and, and so on and so forth. And so he says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And again, it's the Gospel of John that, that gives us a little more detail of what went on that evening, where it tells us that as part of this interaction, that Jesus whispers to John, and Judas there right alongside, 
that the betrayer is the one to whom he will give the bread. And that as soon as, this is John 13, it says, it is the one to whom I will give this bread, piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish and then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so John is aware of this, probably not fully understanding it. We know in another place that when Jesus says to Judas, what you need to do, do quickly, that the disciples think that that has something to do with going out and buying stuff for the, for the feast uh, or giving money to the poor or whatever it may be because Judas kept the money back. So not everyone is knowing what is going on. As John writes this gospel some 30 years later, 40 years later, he now knows what is going on and he makes those comments here. But notice how it goes on. It says, as Judas takes that bread, Satan enters into him. Something changes in Judas the moment he takes that piece of bread. This was the moment of no return for Judas. This is the moment as Jesus, if you will, picture the scene, as Jesus kind of extends this bread to Judas, this is the moment where Judas comes face to face with his sin and has that chance to turn in repentance. It's as if Jesus is making one last appeal to the man that would go on to betray him. As if, again, he's reaching out his hand, which would have been dripping with the juices from that uh, Passover lamb that they were, they were eating. And it's as if he says to him, Judas, I know what you're going to do. Will you not turn? Will you not, not do this thing? But as we see, Judas would not be dissuaded. And instead, he reaches out and he grabs that piece of bread from the Lord and no doubt consumes it, leading Jesus to say, also from John 13, what you are about to do, do quickly. And so the Lord here is offering one final opportunity to Judas to turn from the thing that he was about to do. Now, of course, all-powerful God as he is, Jesus could have stopped Judas at any moment, he could have compelled him to be a good disciple that fell in line with all the others. But you'll notice about our passage here, Judas is never under any compulsion. Judas would have to decide for himself the way that he was going to go, if he was going to betray or if he would not betray. He was under no compulsion. And that's the whole human situation. God could compel each one of us regarding the way each of us would go, but he does not. God has given each one of us a free will to decide for ourselves whether we will or we will not submit ourselves to him. And he appeals to us by his love. He warns us with his truth. But the ultimate determination of whether we will or we will not walk with him lies solely within our own power, even as it did here with Judas. And so the Lord extends to Judas this piece of bread. And in so many words, he says, he asks him, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man? And, when, and Judas takes that bread, thus committing himself to do the most defining act of betrayal that the world has ever known. Mark 14, 21, Jesus continues, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. And in all of recorded history, Judas is rightly regarded as perhaps the most notorious sinner of all time. He betrayed the Son of Man, the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, 
most giving, most loving person of all time. And not only did not only that, but he betrayed God's own son who had come into this world to rescue people from their sin. Jesus says, woe unto that man, and that it would have been better for him to not even been born. Now we know there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 11, that Judas's actions actually fulfill. And yet, we know it was Judas's own wicked motivation and his own decision that will ultimately bring about his condemnation. And so here again, we have one of those paradoxes of Scripture. It's much like the debate of free will versus sovereign election. You know, how can those two things coexist, the one with the other? The Son of Man is betrayed by a friend in fulfillment of prophetic Scripture, and yet his supposed follower, Judas, is held responsible for the act that he commits. And one other paradox is that while all seems to be in the control of sinful hands, the reality is the Lord is sovereignly in control of all of these things, and he will use all of these things to accomplish his eternal purpose of saving men's souls. And so what you do, do quickly. Judas now departs. John 13.30 says that Judas took the bread, he went out, and it was night. And Jesus there, back in our Mark passage, with the rest of his disciples, he pauses in the midst of the meal, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, and then he says to his disciples, and I'm putting together some of the words we read in Matthew, some we read in Mark, some we read in Luke, and he says, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And Jesus then passed the bread, and each one of them broke off a piece of that bread, and they began to pass it around amongst themselves. And shortly thereafter, Jesus took a cup, and he blesses that cup. That, that is, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them that they might each drink from it. And then as we read in Mark's passage, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The bread representing his broken body, the, the wine serving as a symbol of his poured out blood, the, the very things that he was about to undergo in just a few short hours on that same day. His body would be broken, his blood would be poured out. And Jesus then says, do this in remembrance of me, we have recorded in Luke's gospel. And with those words, Jesus instituted what we have come to know by a variety of different names. It's called the Lord's Table. Sometimes it's referred to as communion. Some church uh, backgrounds, they call it the Eucharist, a word which just simply means thanksgiving. But with those words of follow what I have just done and do this in remembrance of me, Jesus instituted for us this practice, this new feast day, essentially, for these Jewish believers here, and certainly a brand new feast day for those Gentiles that would come to believe, which would serve as a memorial throughout the church age of his death and of his redemption that is accomplished by his death. And he gives to us, his church, a ritual that when truly entered into can serve as a tangible reminder of the perfect plan and the work of God. And that plan is outlined for us in the words of our Lord here. And I want to show it to you. Notice, uh, it's Mark, Luke says it as well. 
but tells us three things in this account. Number one, notice it says Jesus took. And so it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And so that's the first point of our outline about what is accomplished at the cross that we are celebrating when we take communion. Every time we celebrate communion, we celebrate the fact that Jesus took upon himself human flesh and that he came in human form and that the form of a servant. Jesus took. Secondly, we take notice a little later in that verse, it says, and he broke it. And that is the second kind of theme here of what we celebrate when we take communion. And we celebrate that he laid down that human flesh, that it might be beaten, that it might be broken as an offering unto the Lord on behalf of the very ones that were engaged in taking that life. And then finally, you'll see in Mark's passage, it goes on and it says, and Jesus gave it to his disciples. And much as he did with Judas earlier in the evening, when he extended his hand to each of his disciples, uh, and he invited them to take of the bread and partake of it for themselves. In that same way, even today, Jesus extends his hand. He extends his work on the cross as a gift for all to receive. I think it's ever important to remind ourselves that Jesus' work on the cross is effectual for those that actually receive the work on the cross. As John introduced his gospel, he wrote this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And so here at this communion, as Jesus extended his hand to his disciples to receive from him those pieces of bread, even so now Jesus extends his hand to all that are listening today. You'll notice Jesus says, take it. Take means that it will never be forced upon you. A person has to receive it. And so this morning, even as we find ourselves scattered around Mercer County and Bucks County and the various other places that people are watching this from, we're going to do that. We're going to take communion together. And we're going to do so in remembrance of the work of Jesus Christ, specifically the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus Christ allowed that flesh to be broken and killed as an offering and gift to all that would receive. And Jesus Christ extends that offering to each one of us that are gathered in this way this morning. And so I asked you earlier to, to gather up um, some bread and some juice and, and to have that ready. And so if you have placed your trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, and if you have confessed that your sin separates you from God, but that the work of God on the cross on your behalf cleanses you of that sin, then this morning I want to encourage you, would you take the bread with me? And would, in a moment, would you take the cup with me, partaking in these things in remembrance of the Lord's work? Let's take the bread. And we'll take the cup together. Let's pray together. Father, we, as we think back to this initial night of these disciples there in that room with you, 
And Lord, uh, experiencing you coming and washing their feet, interacting with you in dialogue and expressing, not fully understanding all that was happening and where are you going and we don't know the way, hearing you teach them about abiding in the vine that they might bear much fruit, hearing you pray for them, that high priestly prayer, and then hearing you say to them at the meal that one of you will betray me and wrestling with that, could it possibly be me? And then, Lord, after Judas had left, you, had, you continued to remain gathered with your disciples, those true followers of yours, and you invited them to partake of your broken body and your shed blood. And you've given us, them, this institution to remind us of the work of Christ on the cross, that any righteousness that is our own is purely the result of your good work that is within us. That when you look on us and our sin-filled lives, you see the righteousness of Christ. Our sin is covered by the blood of the Lamb that has been applied to our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that that reality would flood our hearts this morning for every one of us that has just partaken of this uh, this communion meal together. And we would rejoice in our salvation as we go from this place, encouraged and refreshed and renewed and enthused about who we are, children of God. And so bless your church. I thank you for them. And we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close out with another song or so, and then I'm going to just wrap up with a scripture uh, at the end of our time. So let's worship one more time together.